Hello, and welcome back to Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims. I'm your host, Craig Cohen. And on this episode, I am pleased to introduce and bring on to the show fellow podcaster Armando Ronquillo. Armando, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for letting me on. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And Armando, it's pretty funny. We connected through one of my other podcasts, the Slycast, which is the Sylvester Stallone podcast that I do with some friends. And I was thinking about before we connected on, on the call here that you're like one of the first listeners that I remember actually reaching out when, when we started that show up. So you've been a longtime listener. I have been. I have been a longtime Stallone fan as well. You know, it's like uh, the guy's been part of my life my whole life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I always tell everybody that if if he ever passes, that I'm going to take a whole week of bereavement so I could uh, – just mourn his loss, the loss, you know? Yeah, well, it seems like Sly is from some good genes. His, both his folks lived well into their 90s. So, uh, you know, hopefully that date won't come for another 20 or so years. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Hope he lives forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he'll live forever on screen. And for those that are listening that aren't aware of it, the Slycast is the Sylvester Stallone fan podcast that I do. And we basically cover every movie from the beginning of his career all the way to the end. A couple weeks ago, we put up our Assassins episode, and we're just chugging along. The 90s are going to be a little difficult for us to get through. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so you do a podcast called The Talented Slackers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, um, actually, I wanted to do a Stallone podcast to begin with. And uh, I saw that you guys had already had one. And I was just like, well, I can't do that. You know, uh, they're already doing it perfectly. I can't, I can't top that. So I was like, I guess I'll start this one out over here where we're going to just focus on what was somebody, somebody called it high octane uh, movies, uh, high octane action movies. And we started out with one of Steven Seagal's movies uh, out for justice. And basically it was like me wanting to say, yeah, you guys may think these movies are bad, but let me tell you why I think this is good. And it just <laughs> snowballed from there. Yeah, that's great. I'll include a link to the show uh, in the show notes here. And I got to say, Out for Justice, is that the one where he has the fight in the uh, like the bar where he puts the, the cue ball in like uh, a napkin, like a cloth napkin? Is he beating everybody with the cue ball? He puts it in a hand towel. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> yeah. man. Steven Seagal movies, I guess those first three or four, I, I really, I'm not a, I'm not a great Seagal fan, but I remember me and my brother were there opening day for like probably those first four that he did. Um, Hard to Kill, Out for Justice, Mark for Death, and uh, I'm not sure what he did after and Mark. Under Siege? Under Siege. I'm telling you, we were there opening night for all four. Like, wow. those, I mean, before he became a parody of himself, like Steven Seagal, like, I don't know, he, he he turned it in. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm definitely not oblivious to what he's turned into now because I'm like, you know, you used to be great and that's what I'm hanging on to, you know? And uh, now I, I, I don't know what the guy's mentality is or what, what have you, but uh, I, I like to hold on to what he used to be. And, and all those uh, earlier movies were real fun. They're real fun to watch. I remember, I think the last time I remember seeing him on screen and being like, damn, that, that was good was, was it the first machete that he was in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's that, 
uh, he's got like the samurai sword at the end of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had the um, the uh, million dollar man. No, wait, was the million dollar man the? It was like some noise, the uh, the bionic man or something that played whenever he pulled the, the samurai sword out. I actually spoke to Robert Rodriguez, you know, because I'm a huge fan of Robert Rodriguez, and I actually got to meet him at a uh, at a meet and greet, and oh, cool. he was telling me that that was Steven Seagal's idea to kill himself because he honestly feels like nobody can beat him. <laughs> Go figure. That's great. I love I love Robert Rodriguez. And uh, it's funny. I, I, I'm sure I'm. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I'll let the listeners know that there's actually a scene in Pulp Fiction that was directed by Robert Rodriguez. Oh yeah. And it's the scene where Quentin Tarantino is on screen as Jimmy. <laughs> so um, he figured he would have somebody there that was trusted enough to uh, to direct that scene. So it's kind of cool if you watch that movie. And then I know that years later Tarantino returned the favor on Sin City when he directed the sequence in that movie for um, Rodriguez and um, Frank Miller, where Benicio Del Toro's head is like animated in the car. (laughs) That's right. And then Rodriguez scored uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. Right, right. And then, of course, they did Grindhouse together, which is still one of my favorite movie-going experiences. I think I saw Grindhouse in the theater like three times. And I remember, like, I didn't take the day off of work, but... I went on my lunch break to, to to Best Buy when the Blu-ray finally came out of the complete Grindhouse because when that first came out oh, on home video, yeah. they had put Planet Terror out separately and it was an extended cut and they put out an extended cut of Death Proof. But I was like, man, I want everything. I want that theatrical experiences I had. Yep. I have that one too. Yeah, that's cool. So was that in Texas there where you met Rodriguez? It was. It was in Austin. I live up north, uh, like Dallas-Fort Worth. or Fort Worth. We like we like being called Fort Worth over here. Okay. But uh, yeah, I, li- uh, I went to Austin. It was a, it was a 20, 20th anniversary to El Mariachi. Okay. And uh, yeah, he was there. And, you know, he him and his band, they, they showed the movie and then they, they did a concert sort of thing. And the concert was really awesome. I, I loved it. He loves Stevie Ray Vaughan, and he even dresses like him when he's on stage. Yeah, I've seen that. And was that other dude there? I forgot the the dude from Tito and the Tarantulas, um, who was in Desperado. I forgot that dude's name, and it and it 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 stinks yeah, that I Tito, don't remember. Tito Lariva. Yeah, they're a really good band. Yeah, though they were they were good, but he wasn't there though. Yeah, yeah, he's great in Desperado too. Um, I'll tell you, Desperado was a movie on home video. I can't count the amount of times that I watched that on VHS. Oh, man. Me and one of my cousins probably wore that movie out one summer. And the thing I loved about it is we had the full frame VHS of it. So they had opened up the top and bottom. And if you watch that, the VHS cut of it, you can actually see like the trampoline that guys bounced off of. Like when (laughs) Rodriguez is doing like those crazy, I just got shot. So I'm flying in the air shots and, for the yep. longest time, I was like, wow, why, why can't you see the trampoline? And then, of course, when I got the nice DVD copy of it in widescreen, I was like, oh, it's cropped out. So That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it was gone. Yeah, no, that was a cool one. And I got to tell you, you know how Black Panther was a big cultural phenomenon. To me, Desperado was that phenomenon. You know, I yeah. was like, wow, there's not a lot of Hispanic action heroes on screen. And the closest thing we had was La Bamba. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> When Desperado came out, I was like, oh, my gosh, we finally have a Hispanic hero on screen. And, you know, he's 
kicking ass like John, like a like in a John Woo movie, you know. Yeah, and, you uh-huh. know, I, I loved it. I loved it. You know, and he's always gonna be my hero. Robert Rodriguez always gonna be my hero because of that. Yeah, yeah, no, right on. I I remember reading um, Rebel Without a Crew. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, you know what? I loaned that to a friend of mine, and he never gave it back to me. So. And now we live we live on other sides of the country, so I I guess I'm gonna have to buy a fresh copy of that. But Robert Rodriguez's story is so inspiring from a um, an artistic perspective. You know, this dude made mm-hmm. you know El Mariachi for what seven grand, and seven. you know financed parts of it by subjecting himself to laboratory experiments. Right, <laughs> and uh, he still got a career in 2020. I mean, he directed uh, Alita: Battle Angel, and that was uh, might have been the biggest film he ever did. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I can't think of the the other ones were were pretty modestly budgeted, but the yeah, the lead is his biggest one. Yeah, I guess maybe the third Spy Kids movie might have had one of his his larger budgets, but um, I have immense respect for Rodriguez. You know, I'm kind of a DIY guy. You know, I, mm-hmm. I love do it yourself mentality, and if you don't have to spend money, don't mainly because I don't have a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I always admired the fact that he scored his own films, got into the special effects aspect of his films. And the the thing I really love about his home video presence is he's willing to share all of that knowledge. If you buy one of his movies on DVD, you get the 10 minute film school. And then you also get like the 10 minute cooking school where he'll teach you how to cook a dish. Right, right. <laughs> Great yeah. stuff. My brother actually made one of the dishes he made on uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Puerco Pibil, it's like, um, it's like almost like brisket, sort of. Right, right. Yeah, he's a super fun filmmaker. And it's cool that there's a connection between him and Tarantino because I kind of feel like, you know, Tarantino, Rodriguez, maybe to a lesser extent, Steven Soderbergh, they kind of mm-hmm. drove independent film in the 90s. And Kevin Smith. And, and Kevin Smith, yeah the nineties would not have ended the way they did cinematically if not for those guys making movies. And I think it was like the first time since maybe like that wave in the seventies where you had like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, John Badham, all those guys. Like it seemed like the eighties kind of took a break from the, you know, director as the auteur and the Mm -hmm. nineties Tarantino and Rodriguez kind of brought that back to the forefront. So I've always you know, been excited when those two can collaborate. And I've actually thought about doing another sort of spinoff aspect of this show where I kind of talk about some of the other films. Cause I'd love to talk about from dusk till dawn because oh yeah, that was just such a fun movie going experience. And I remember I was so deep in it at the time that I knew like I, I might've had the screenplay before I even saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember opening night going to that movie, and I, I, I believe I've told this story on the on the podcast before. Uh-huh. But like sitting there with an audience that didn't realize it was a vampire movie, so you've got like you know these people that are there to see like a George Clooney crime movie, sort of, and then forty minutes in, it turns into this batshit insane vampire movie, you know, where right. you got like Cheech Marin as a vampire and Danny <laughs> Trejo as a vampire. And it was just wild. And just to see the the audience react to that, that's a, a movie memory that sort of just burned into my my psyche because you see movies sometimes and you can't remember where you saw them or when you saw them. But From Dust Till Dawn is one of those movies where I remember the exact theater. I remember the exact seat I was in. And it's just such an exciting film. Yes. Oh, yeah. 
there's not a moment of that film that I, I don't enjoy. But we're not here to talk about From Dust Till Dawn. Hopefully, like I said, <laughs> I'll do a spinoff where I do talk about it. We're here to talk about Pulp Fiction, of course. And I'm glad that you tweeted a couple of weeks ago. You tweeted about watching Pulp Fiction again. And you tweeted something about the $5 milkshake. Right. You know, uh, encouraged me to reach out to you for the podcast. But you have a fun story about the first time you saw Pulp Fiction. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's, it's actually funny because uh, that night that I tweeted that out, I was a little inebriated <laughs> and uh, I was watching Pulp Fiction and um, I was quoting back and forth with, with my friend. And, you know, we were talking about how razor sharp Quentin Tarantino was in those first two movies, Reservoir Dogs and, uh, and Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was just like, I'm just going to tweet out as many <laughs> lines as I can from this movie. But yeah, the first time I saw Pulp Fiction, uh, my dad had let me watch Reservoir Dogs, and I wore that tape out at the video store that I checked it out at. Yeah. Okay. So we had The Crow, and the trailer of Pulp Fiction was on The, the Crow uh, VHS. Oh, wow. So so I asked my dad, I was like, I was like hey, can, can I watch that? You know, he was still kind of strict on what I could and couldn't watch. He let me watch a lot of stuff, but he had heard about quitting with a foul mouth and mm-hmm. everything like that. And so he was kind of like a little bit on edge about that. So a friend of mine at school had the VHS copy of Pulp Fiction. Okay. So <laughs> that Friday, he let me borrow Pulp Fiction and I left it in the living room because I wanted to watch it on my dad's big screen right. instead of my little screen that I had in my room. So I don't know what I was doing that Friday night. I ended up not watching it that night, but the, uh, the next morning after I woke up, my dad had already been up. And I was like, where's that movie? Where's, where's Pulp Fiction? I want to watch it. He looked at me and goes, you are not going to watch that. That movie is the devil. <laughs> and I was just like, what? I was like, but, it, but I was like, dad, you let me watch Rambo. <laughs> he kills a lot of people on that. <laughs> and he's like, no, you're not watching this. And I was like, why? What, what's, what's wrong with the movie? He goes, there's a part where Ving Rhames. <laughs> 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 and, you know, the rest of what happens in that scene. And he, of course, you know, he got sickened by that. And he didn't want, of course, he didn't want me to watch that because I was like 13 years old when that movie came out. Okay. So I was like, all right, I won't watch it. So that night, him and my mom went out. (laughs) That Saturday night, him and my mom went out. Guess who got to watch Pulp Fiction? (laughs) That's great. Did your dad eventually turn around on the movie? He did. He okay. did. Cause uh, I told him, I was like, I was like, dad, you know, I was like, this guy's inspiring. You know, he's working with Robert Rodriguez and from, for, cause we had heard he was going to work with uh, Robert for, from Dust till dawn. And, you know, my dad liked uh, Robert Rodriguez also. And so I was like, dad, I was like, come on, you know, he's kind of inspiring too. You know, he, he writes and directs his own movies. That's what I want to do. Right. So yeah, he, he kind of let go of the leash a little bit, you know, and uh, he finally, he finally let me watch it and I watched it and I was like amazed, you know, yeah. I was just like, gosh, this movie's, this movie's changed things for me. Right. Right. I, I've talked about sort of how Pulp Fiction was like a cinematic awakening for me and it made me really aware of filmmaking as an art. Now, is there any particular moment that you remember from that first time watching the movie that really hit you that this was something special and something different? Um, it was uh, the fact that I didn't know most of those actors that were in, that were in the movie. Like I knew who Bruce Willis and Travolta was, mm-hmm. but Tim Ross, uh, Amanda Plummer, 
Sam Jackson. I mean, I, I, I remember seeing him in a couple of movies, but he, I didn't know who he really was. Right. He wasn't Sam Jackson yet. Oh, no. Because every time I watch a movie, I'm like, well, I want to see it because of Stallone or Schwarzenegger. Those are the yeah. reasons I'm watching this movie. I could care less about the story. I just want to see what they do. Mm-hmm. And so what got me with this one is that I was so intrigued by these actors that I'd never really seen. And I was just like, it's not just the acting that's doing it for me. It's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, because it felt kind of real, you know, like it was like I could see people at, at, a, at a diner, you know, talking, you know, not, probably not about a robbery, but, you know, they're yeah. they're just sitting there talking, you know, because like Amanda Plummer is like this nice woman, you know, she's like, I don't want to kill anybody. But then she turns into a psychopath in, in five seconds. Yeah, yeah. I got to say that we haven't really talked too much about that opening scene on the um, podcast here. So I'm glad you're keying in on that because that is such a, a weird sort of start to the movie because I guess if you've seen the trailer, you sort of have an idea of what to expect, but just this Mm -hmm. accented couple in a, in a coffee shop having a conversation and then you sort of put together what's going down. And then the the fact that they're actually going to rob the place. Right. And then the movie just sort of takes off from there. And then I love at the end when Jules and Vincent go to get breakfast and you put it all together and you're like, Oh shit, they're going to the, yeah. coffee shop where <laughs> pumpkin and honey bunny are so uh, right. it's kind of cool you know how that movie connects all the dots and stuff like that it's great sort of how that opening it just freeze frames on her mm-hmm. going crazy and i, I don't uh, unfortunately have the dialogue written down right now but the dialogue she screams at the beginning is different than the dialogue she screams at the end it's it, she reverses a word or something yeah i think she says something like in the first one she says i'll kill every last motherfucking one of you yeah. And then in the second one, she says, and I'll kill all you motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I, I've always thought that was kind of cool because I, I thought it, it showed how memory works, you know? Like, we were mm-hmm. almost seeing that scene from two different perspectives and the way people remember things is different. And I also like the fact that Tarantino, I guess it wasn't his fault, it was more whoever the continuity person on the movie was, but that Tarantino was comfortable enough as a filmmaker to leave that in. Right, right. And that might have been the best take. There might have been another take where she said it correctly. But I kind of dig the fact that, you know, you have that disconnect and it still works. Because like I said, you know, for me, it's always been more like the perspective of the scene is different. Right. Yeah. And especially when you hear Jules and, and Vincent talking in the background. Yeah. The first time I saw it, I didn't hear it. No, yeah, you don't because you're not listening to that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And then when you when you uh, when you go and watch it and uh, you you see from that perspective of Jules and Vincent, you hear their dialogue, and then you're like, okay, I got to go back and watch the beginning again, <laughs> yeah. and boom, there it is. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the way the story's told, you said you sort of had aspirations of being a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Was there? anything that stood out to you in terms of the way that Tarantino was telling the story and sort of how everything became circular? I read a lot about the movie and it said it was supposed to be like a, like a novel, you know, those pulp novels and everything. So I took that in and I was like, okay, so this is going to be like different episodes. Mm -hmm. So him doing that, I wasn't surprised. You know, I was just like, I was like, okay, well, I'm sure we're going to see this, but you know, but then again, whenever Travolta dies, whenever he gets shot by Bruce, that surprised me. And I was like, come on, they're going to have to have him back in the rest of the movie. Right. (laughs) So all that, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised by this at all. 
but I was glad that he came back to Travolta and I was like, okay, that's, that's who I like. You know, I like Travolta, you know, he, he, you know, I grew up watching his movies too, you know? Yeah. So that was the one thing where I was kind of upset about. I was just like, Oh, come on, you got to bring him back. And then when he finally comes back, I'm like, yes, you know, let's, let's end this one on a high note here, you know? Yeah. And I feel that's kind of the beauty of telling the story the way they did, because you know, the ending with them walking out of the, the coffee shop and their volleyball clothes right. with Surfrider playing is like the perfect way to end that movie. It's really funny though. The more I've talked about it for this show, the more I've thought about Vincent as a character. He's such a weird, weird character because you really shouldn't be rooting for the guy. No, <laughs> no, not at all. He's a, he's a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, shooting the guy in the back of, in the back of the car. I mean, why does he still have his gun out first of all? And why does this? Why is his finger on the trigger? Yeah, yeah, it's such poor gun etiquette. Yes, that, and also having the heroin in his in his. But then again, that could that could probably happen to anybody who does does drugs. Yeah, you know, he had the heroin in his pocket, and Mia just happens to uh, snort it. And then, of course, when he's arguing with Eric Stoltz, <laughs> that whole scene when he him and Eric Stoltz and Roseanne Arquette are arguing is to me by far one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a Tarantino movie, besides the lynch mob part in Django. Oh yeah, <laughs> and. You know, it's very serious. Like the, the lynch bob part in Django, it's very serious. They're going to go kill these two guys. And they're over here arguing about the holes in, in the sheets. Yeah. And it's like he brings a kind of lightness to it, you know. And it's the same thing with the uh, the scene with uh, Mia and, and uh, Vincent and, and Eric Stoltz. She's dying. You yeah. know, she's over here dying. And they're over there like, go get the shot, you know. And, and <laughs> yeah, she's like yeah. saying, Fuck you, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, Where's so the little funny, black medical hilarious. book? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And then she's like, "Stop bothering me." And then uh, the the other part that gets me is he goes, "Well, I will if you if you let me." And he's like, "Just get the fucking shot," you know. And yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. Like, I've had arguments with people like that. Not, of course, not with the syringe or anything like that. But it's just like, hey, will you go go get me go get me this or something? And they're like, "Oh, I will if you let me." <laughs> but they're arguing while a woman is dying in their living room. Yeah. That's a great, great sequence. And then, of course, you've got sort of that moment where they're drinking coffee with Jimmy and the wolf, and he pulls a complete attitude. Oh, my gosh. I've talked with a couple of people about this online and on the show, and, you know, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, Vincent was just an asshole. Do you sort of have any kind of takeaway about, you know, why he was so sort of uh, offended by the wolf's ability to help them? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the that's the, that I chalked it up to him being a dumbass, also. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, here's this guy who's who's so calm. He he looks like he's done this before because of how calm he is. Yeah, and he's getting them out of the situation, and he just pulls the attitude on him, and it's almost like, oh my gosh, you should be in the back of that trunk right now. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. that's what's so cool about that. And, and you know, in, in most movies, you know, the hero, you know, either goes along or, or the, the bad guy goes along with whatever's going on. That's one thing about Pulp Fiction I love so much is that kind of like Shane Black, uh, mm -hmm. the writer, Lethal Weapon and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. His characters say things that a normal hero wouldn't say. Mm -hmm. Like in Last Boy Scout, when uh, Bruce Willis's character says, you're going to lose. Everybody hates you. 
heroes don't do that in movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the same thing with this scene, you know, Travolta, he's the main protagonist, well, not protagonist, he's the main part of this of this scene, and so is Sam Jackson, and he's over here arguing <laughs> with the guy who's trying to help him, and it's just like, that's not supposed to happen. That's not supposed to happen, but it's so interesting to hear him talk. To yeah, hear yeah. Him, what are you going to say next, buddy? <laughs> and that scene is even funny, too, like, when you have them washing their hands, and, like, Sam Jackson's, like, using soap and water, and, you know, Travolta takes the nice white linen and makes it look like, a, as Jules yes. says, a maxi pad. <laughs> And he's all like, uh, maybe if you had lab, I'd, I'd have done a better job. You know? <laughs> and it's like, you don't hear that in regular movies. You don't hear Tom Cruise's character in Collateral talk about washing his hands. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, then maybe they, they came out after Pulp Fiction. But any other Hitman movie in the 80s, you never heard that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what makes it so unique. The other thing about Pulp Fiction that really sort of hit me when I watched it for the first time is all the locations you were seeing were locations that you weren't used to seeing. It was an LA movie that didn't look like the Hollywood version of LA. Right. right. Even like when Butch goes, you know, through the backyards to get Mm -hmm. to the apartment complex, you were seeing the, like the sort of non-glamorous side of LA, which I thought was really cool. And a lot of movies still avoid doing that. You know, you'll see, the same locations in movies again and again. And it kind of feels like Pulp Fiction existed in a real world that was just maybe slightly, right. slightly off from where we were. But that's the, one of the things I've always loved about watching that movie is, is all the set design even marries up with the practical locations so well. The set design in that movie is just impeccable in my opinion. And lend such a genuine look and feel to that movie. Yeah, because if you look at each story in in Pulp Fiction, like whenever uh, uh, Mia and and Travolta are going to Jackrabbit Slims, Mm -hmm. you see how popping it is you know like the the how even the house that he picks her up from it's very nice it's very elegant yeah you know there, there's the two african fellows you know and everything <laughs> it's, it's, they, they've got art and everything up there and when they go to this restaurant it's like he says a wax museum of the pulse everything's nice and and cool and everything cinematic mm-hmm. but then when you go to bruce willis's story he's hiding out yeah He's trying to stay low to where they can't find him. So he's going through the back parts of the the backyards and everything. It's kind of ugly. You know, it's not supposed to be glamorous. And that's one thing I liked about what Quentin did with that is that he showed us the ugly part. And if you ever watch the show, uh, The Shield. Yeah. I feel like they take place in the same world. Right. Because they take you through nasty parts of L.A. And and that's what I like. I liked about that's what I liked about Bruce Willis's story is that that he was hiding out and he's going through the ugly parts of L.A. You know, he even got to see something ugly that's in L.A. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing I really like about the Butch storyline is it took such a cliche kind of movie trope, you know, the boxer that has to throw a fight Mm -hmm. and it kind of just flipped it on its end and presented it in a way that we had never seen before. And then, you know, like, as we talked about, it culminates in this wild, wild scene where I don't think anybody could have guessed what was going to happen to Butch and Bing Reigns or or to uh, Marcellus there. Um, And that's what I appreciate about that story. And I think that was Tarantino's sort of intention with Pulp Fiction originally was sort of take these movie tropes and present them in a way that we hadn't seen before. 
Yeah, that's what I liked about that story. The Bruce Willis story was, I was listening to one episode and there, uh, the guy was saying that, I think it was your last episode, and uh, he was saying that uh, Bruce was kind of acting like Bruce, yeah. you know, and but it's also kind of like, well, you know, he, yeah, he was acting a little bit like Bruce, of course. Uh, that's what we're paying to see. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's also like, who better? Because he's, he's kind of like, out of him, Sly, and uh, Schwarzenegger, he's kind of the smartass of, of the three. Yeah. He's the guy who would be an anti-hero out of all, all three of them. And he goes from not caring about killing Floyd in the, in the boxing match, where he's having this real physical altercation with, with Marcellus mm-hmm. and actually caring. And it's just like, okay, there's the Bruce that I like. Yeah, there's yeah. the diehard Bruce right there. You know, it kind of shows both of his personalities, you know, where it's like, here's this Bruce that could probably just turn on you if you wanted to, you know, like John McClane. Yeah. Imagine him turning away from the situation instead of stepping up and being a hero. He'd be the butch guy in Pulp Fiction. Right. And in Pulp Fiction, he just shows us both, man. And that's what I liked about it. Yeah. And it's funny. I remember reading at one point that one of the actors that was considered for the role of Bush early on was Matt Dillon. And I don't have any problems Mm. with Matt Dillon as an actor, but for me, the performance that Bruce Willis turns in is so far removed than anything I can imagine Matt Dillon doing. So, um, you know, I've said it before that the casting in this movie, like there's nobody else you can imagine in the role. And I think for Butch, that's as true as anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, even, I mean, down to, to uh, uh, what's his name? The bartender. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, my name is Paul. And this shit's between y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even Paul Calderon. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Oh, my gosh. He's such a great actor. You know, I, I, every time I see him, I'm like, man, that guy could, that guy could have been Jules' Jules's part. Yeah. But it's also yeah. like, hey, you know, that's, that's how it is. You know, it, it is what it is. And then that, and, you know, you just got to, make do with your situation. But even when you first see him, whenever he's saying, uh, well, Jules Winfield, get your asses in here. Yeah, and then yeah. he comments on the clothes. <laughs> I love that line. That line is funny as hell, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, that's real talk right there. I feel like the line that he uses. Um, so, you know, I, I told my friend too, I was like the first two movies Quentin made reservoir and pulp. They're lines that everybody probably uses in real life. Right. Mm-hmm. After that, the characters are saying things that they would say in a movie, but he's using the best lines, mm-hmm. you know, cause yeah. in reservoir, you know, he's talking about, uh, Hey, what are you going to do with the bank manager? You know, he's going to cut off his, his pinky, the little <laughs> one. And then he says, all right, I'm hungry. Let's go get a taco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay, that that's real right there. You know? And I feel like even Chris Penn's dialogue, mm-hmm. I feel like he's really saying that. <laughs> like oh, that's, yeah. that's out of his vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And Pulp Fiction has a little bit of a mixture of both. I mean, I still use some of the lines from Pulp Fiction in real life whenever I get a chance. I love doing that. Yeah. But uh, some, of the, some of the lines they use in the movie is like, who talks like that? You know, yeah. but it's awesome. I love yeah. it. <laughs> That's great. Armando, this has been a really, really fun discussion. And I hope at some point we can chat again. Uh, like I said, maybe we can sit yeah. down and, and uh, talk about From Dust Till Dawn when, if and when I decide to do that episode. I'm there. (laughs) All right, cool. Armando is um, part of the Talented Slackers podcast. And again, I will include a link to that show in the show notes. Armando, thank you very much. I I had a great time. Thank you. So did I. And uh, I'll see you on the next one. All right, cool.